0: I like restricting my hypotheses to those that are testable and requiring it that I have to have evidence for the argument. And if I don't have evidence, I have to say, I don't know.
1: This is Science Moab. Today we have our second part of our two-part interview about volcanoes on the Colorado Plateau with Dr. Michael Ort from Northern Arizona University. In this interview, Dr. Ort explains what is happening when volcanoes erupt, how that influences nutrients and water, and how these eruptions may have impacted the people living near them. Our interview begins with an explanation of what is actually coming out of a volcano when it first erupts.
0: Some put out lava flows. Mm Um, and lava flows when they come out the gas separates very cleanly from them and so the gas goes up in the air and I'll tell you about the gas in a minute but you know those are clean they, and they they pretty much resurface an area wherever they flow they resurface it. They might set off a few um, forest fires or something. Um, a lot of them put out tephra. Now tephra is just broken volcanic material um, and so it can be of any size and it's, so when I say tephra it could be um, ash, when we talk about ash, it's, it's, it's less it's less than a couple millimeters in grain size. So it's sand, silt, clay, really fine stuff. And then there's the stuff when we think of cinder cones and such, we think of these coarser stuff. Well, we Lapilli are between 2 and 64 millimeters and blocks and bombs are more than 64 millimeters. Basically smaller than your fist or bigger than your fist. These can be spread over a large area. Sometimes the, the, the ash can be spread... Um, Sunset Crater probably got something over 2,000 square kilometers it covered with more than a centimeter of ash. Um, and, you know, so that's that affected a large area. Yeah. And then it probably blew quite a ways downwind. But what we see, the, the cool thing about that is it changes the nutrients that are available, mm-hmm. and that gets into the soil. So when we look at trees that we're growing around then, we actually see an increase in phosphorus. Um, we see an increase in sulfur, which isn't too surprising. Um, in some cases, calcium seems to go up; in other cases, it seems to go down. And I suspect that has to do with uh, the availability and whatever the soils are, and the acidity, into changes in acidity mm-hmm. of the water moving through there. And I, I suspect it has to do with that, um, but. This is providing some nutrients that are useful. Plants like phosphorus. Um, it may—we don't know what it does to nitrogen. So you know, it could—it could mess up nitrogen fixation, or it could not. We don't know that. Um, and nobody—nobody nobody I know has done any work on that. I've never found anything on it. And then um, the gases coming out—the uh, the, by far the most abundant is, is water. But, CO2 comes out, it bubbles out of the, of the magma pretty deep, and so it often gets well ahead of it. It can be really diffuse, but CO2 is typically associated with these. So those two come out, um, and, and you know, if you think about it, that's why the early Earth, Earth's early atmosphere was so rich in CO2. The water goes up in the atmosphere, and then it rains back out, and so you had oceans early on. But the CO2 would go up there, and there was nothing to change that, so it just built up so it was huge amounts of CO2 from the volcanoes. Um, Other things that come out, um, nitric acid, um, hydrochloric acid uh, are are pretty common, and sulfuric acid. And those are not necessarily in those forms when they come out of the volcano, but they quickly interact with water and other things in the atmosphere as they go out. And so you actually change the, the acidity species in the eruption cloud as you go farther away from from the vent and that actually changes and it's, it's kind of cool yeah. chemistry, if you like chemistry. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that rains down and that changes availability of all sorts of things in soils. Yeah. So you know you, you change the pH of soil and and for things like again phosphorus that could be like in Mexico we were looking at Periquitin volcano and it erupted in 1943 to 1952 but it changed the acidity of the soil waters. Going through the soils there, and the soils there have these things called allophanes in them that really hold on to phosphorus really well, but they're only stable within a limited pH range. And when the pH changed, they had to change their 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 crystalline their subcrystalline structure. It's not quite a crystal, but um, it had to change its structure. And as it changed structure, sulfur was li- I mean uh, phosphorus was liberated. So the trees actually picked up phosphorus that way. So we. Different ways you can change the, the, the environment with these eruptions. Yeah.
1: I'm wondering how these eruptions change hydrology.
0: There's some evidence on that, and different forms of evidence. Um, scoria cones, what we have some evidence from, from work on sunset and anecdotal from other modern ones, you cover the landscape with this, with this scoria, and you know, the, the, the tephra covering it, and what happens is, is that lets the water pass through really easily and get down to the pre-existing soils, and with much higher infiltration rates, because it doesn't easily wick back out. There isn't a lot of fine material in many cases right. to wick it back right. up and evaporate. And so you actually get increased infiltration. And so, like if we look after Sunset Crater, it looks like there were a bunch of springs that were active after that eruption that aren't active today now that the was the blown away, but for some period of time there were springs there and they left these spring deposits and people lived by those springs. So it may be that that changes the hydrology in that respect. But then the other things that happen is, is um, you know, you're covering the landscape with this stuff and it also wipes out a lot of plants and things. Finer grain material um, can wash away in floods, and so then you get um, debris flows, mud flows moving down. Mm-hmm. And so th- there was a fire outside of S- uh, Flagstaff and the east side, near above Donie Park, and on the side of San Francisco Mountain. Five years ago or so, and um, that denuded the landscape, and huge amounts of mud came down into Donie Park and these mud flows, and. The same sort of thing would be expected with volcanic eruptions. And in fact, Joni Park is built on 150, 200 meters of deposits of these things. It's happened many, many times there. All all Everybody out there is building on top of this, this huge sequence of, of mud flows.
1: Um, so you started to mentioned that people who are living near these volcanoes in this area had more access to springs, and I know some of your work involves how people have interacted with the eruptions. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was just wondering if you could tell me a little about how the people living here interacted with the eruptions when they happened.
0: Well, I mean, it's it's inferred, of obviously, course. because what you, what you have to work on are the stories that the descendants of the people who lived here have, and you have archaeological evidence, and you work off of that. Yeah. One thing great about humans is unlike, you know, say bears, humans leave trash, and so you can follow around, you know, figure out where they were. You know, bear poop kind of goes away after a short while. You can't tell where they were. So we use humans to trace this. Um, and so, say with the sunset eruption, we could see that um, the area right where sunset erupted was, was sort of this ideal elevation for farming. Um, because the they, the people who lived here corn was probably the most important crop they had other you know squash and beans and various things but but corn was really really important and 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 clearly sacred to them and um the corn below about about 6200 feet elevation it was too hot and so the, the and and dry and so um you couldn't get the corn to, to grow all the way, you know, in most years you couldn't get it to grow and produce corn cobs because it dried out too much. And above about 7,500 feet, um, it was too cold and the the, the time between the, the last spring freeze and the first fall freeze was too short and so you didn't get a crop because of that. So you had this 6,200 to 7,500 foot elevation and sunset erupted at like sixty-nine, seven (laughs) thousand, something like that. You know, it's like the worst spot that it could do it. It erupts right in there and devastates this area. And uh, so it wiped out some of the archaeologists I work with. They make It's hard to estimate total numbers of people, so there's like a plus or minus of about two times on this, but they came up with about sixteen hundred people would have been living in the area that would have had to to evacuate. And um, But what this did was something really cool, in that that same idea of the mulch, that that water can go in but doesn't necessarily uh, evaporate back out, when you got about, oh, what, about three inches or so, seven and a half centimeters of of, um, cinders, of fairly fine-grained cinders out sort of the distal areas, what that does is it holds onto the water. And so you can grow at much lower elevations because you can get by with less water. Yeah. Okay? because the water that does come down doesn't just evaporate away. And if you're growing at, growing at lower elevations, that means you have a longer time between frosts. And so you actually have more security if you can figure out a way to do this, and it turns out this gave them that idea, and, 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 or they, they at least did it there. Um, whether it gave them the idea, I don't know. Um, today, you know, modern uh, Hopi, modern Puebloan folks use pebble mulches to hold the water. So they, they're using the same idea yeah. by creating it with pebbles now. Um, so anyway, that would have given, given them probably more um, reliable crops. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we see the post-sunset crater ruins that are there today are all in that about sort of five to ten centimeter thicknesses, based on the, the maps we did of where the, what the thicknesses were of the fallout. So that gives us the idea that, you know, hey, they, they, they figured this out really quickly, yeah. and we're on it. Um, fewer, like seven years after the eruption, um, there's already evidence of them down in the Wupaki area. Okay. The first sort of little bit of evidence. not nothing. They hadn't, it hadn't flowered yet to this great extent, but, but they were already starting.
1: So have people kind of suggested that maybe the flowering of Wupaki was because of the results of...
0: It it, it it was it certainly would have been helped along by that right. because you know well right. you know causes can be can be very we it's it's far easier to apply a mechanistic you know they could grow more crops idea but it also could be religious hmm. you know there's lots of different reasons why you could choose to do something um, so so I I hesitate to go too far with that um, but you know they clearly did that and you know the Hopis have a have a story one of their stories that involves the kanaa casino kanaa is, is lived around the area of sunset crater and and their within their kanaa story they, their their description of the eruption is 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 pretty good you know i i think they observed it and they used this story to describe it and you know, from my scientific standpoint, I ascribe different causes to it than they ascribe in their story. But you know, it's a different way of looking at it. Yes, totally. <laughs> so you know, I'm not I'm not in a position to argue. Right. So
1: I assume, though, that how volcanoes affected people, based on the archaeological and cultural record, differed by. The type of people and the volcano. Oh, it, oh
0: like, absolutely sort of different across. volcanoes. Yeah. This is a small enough eruption that there were, you know, even within a local area, there were good and bad effects. Um, you go to Crater Lake. You know, Crater Lake was this really pretty big eruption, six thousand ish years ago. I forget the exact date, but about there, um, and it it made this big eruption that wiped out a big area, and the the, the folks that lived around there then. The evidence is, is they moved out to far eastern Oregon mm. for a few thousand years before moving back, but they maintained their stories of the eruption. They, you know, they knew what had happened. Their description of it, and they, you know, again, you know, to me as a volcanologist, someone talking about, you know, people going up with 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 torches in their hands, that to me is probably, you know, that that that's that's not how a lava flow works, but. From a distance at night, that's the way a lava flow would look. Would be people carrying torches. So, you know, who might have criticized it, but it sure looks, it sure sounds like what we know about the eruption based on geological work. So, you know, different ways of of looking at knowledge. Devastation means you, you move away. Yeah. You know, the Pinatubo eruption. There were a bunch of people who lived up on the mountain, and they had to leave. And they mostly got out. Very few of them died from, they, they had gotten down from it. They knew something was up and they got out of there. Um, but then it it's total disruption of their lives. They can't live where they've always lived. And that's happened even with cinder cones that's happened. The, the Periquitin eruption in Mexico people were moved from their villages to other places and there were already people living where they were moved to and those people weren't necessarily wanting someone to come live on their land. So um, you can get all sorts of fights going on. Are
1: there estimates of how long it takes? like? Potentially, could we estimate how long it's going to take for a Sunset Crater to look not really look like a volcano anymore?
0: It's it's hard. It, it varies with the climate, and it varies with the kind of deposits that come out. Okay. The sunset put out a lot of really porous material, mm-hmm. and so it's harder for trees and plants and stuff to get their roots, yeah, really down to where they want to be. The soil is is after you know nine hundred years is still. You know, maybe incipient soil <laughs> out wow. there. It's, it's not really very good Early, so. um, there's, a, there's a, at about 10, 15 centimeters down, there's an area where the roots go, and that's a lot of that is blown in dust from the Mojave and elsewhere on the Colorado Plateau, and it's sifted down to sort of about that level, and the roots go there because that holds the water, and it also holds more nutrients. So there's one little area, right. but above and below that is a you know a desert right. for the roots. And so it's hard for it to support a lot. Um you go to Pericutin in Mexico, they get um you know, it's between between about a meter and two meters of, of, of precipitation of water a year. And with that much water coming down through there, it washes stuff through, it degrades the material much more quickly, forms clays much more quickly. And it it is more vegetated now after seventy years than sunset is after 900. And then you go up on the San Francisco mountain and, and it's less of the, the, the really porous permeable tephra, the, the, that stuff, and more lava flows. And those block and slow the water a little bit more. So it would probably recover from that somewhat faster. Mm-hmm. So, and it's at a higher elevation where it gets more precip, okay. but it also has a shorter period of time when it's warm. And so the chemical reactions are a little slower. So there's some things, each, right. each spot is a little different. Um, Mount St. Helens has recovered from that eruption in a lot of ways already. There's huge fields of you know, fireweed and things up there. Just, and, and the elk love it. Um, but you can still tell there was a big eruption right. up there. And that's, that's been, what, 35 years. Right. Um, but they get a lot more rain. So it's hard to say, it's, it's not an easy thing to answer. My guess is we're going to need a few thousand years for for sunset to start looking less effective.
1: Effective. Interesting.
0: Oh, and one more story on that. On the north rim of the canyon, there's a a volcano there um, that erupted somewhere between 1050 and 1200 AD, we think. The side on the upwind side of this lava flow enough dust and stuff have blown in onto the lava flow that it's filled in a lot of the cracks and crevices and there's actually trees growing on it and it looks, it's actually developing a soil and on the downwind half of the lava flow, it's barren. Yeah. There's nothing growing and it just hasn't worked its way across that far I, is my guess.
1: Right. I'm interested in what got you interested in studying volcanology.
0: I wasn't a volcanologist. I was, um, I was a senior studying Spanish lit, and I had um, been painting houses and to, to make my way through school, and um, I didn't go back to school that fall. I just, you know, I was painting houses, and I'm going, hey, you know, I, I don't know what I want to do. I, I love Spanish literature. I love the Spanish language and all, but I don't see a job for me that really is doing what I want to do. And so I was kind of, I was going to take a little time and think about it. So I got on a bus and ended up in Bolivia a few months later. And um, along the way, I climbed a bunch of volcanoes. I thought, this is cool. I like being up on volcanoes. And um, so I thought, well, I wonder what I could do with that. And um, I found out that involves geology. I didn't know that. I was pretty out of it. Um, And uh, so I went back to school, started all over started taking math and chemistry and physics and all that stuff and worked my way through and um, got a geology degree. I'm still two classes short of a Spanish degree. <laughs> um, and then, um, then I worked for the USGS in the mapping in the North Cascade. So I got to work on some volcanoes and a bunch of other kind of rocks too. And then I did a PhD in Argentina on the border of Argentina and Bolivia. Caldera up there. Oh, cool. It's the size of I use. And then I um, came here. I've been studying volcanoes ever since.
1: Cool. You just followed an interest.
0: Yeah, I was lucky. Yeah. Yeah, really lucky. But, you know, you don't know how lucky you are until you look back on it and go, oh, man, what were the odds of that?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then my final question is, what do you enjoy about being a scientist?
0: I like... Restricting, I, I, I like restricting my hypotheses to those that are testable and requiring it that I have to have evidence for the argument. And if I don't have evidence I have to say, I don't know. And I like that. I like the rigor of that. That you can't make things up. You just have, you have to go with what you've got and if you can't come up with a decent hypothesis Great. That's the way it is. If you can't come up with a decent hypothesis and then it gets, you, you prove it wrong, you've got to accept that. You know, There's a rigor and sort of honesty to it that I, I really like.
1: Well, thank you. This has been a really, really interesting conversation. The music for our show is by Jeremy Spaulding. The Science News comes from Science Daily. The student interviews are coordinated by Chrissy Post. And the show is produced by Christina Young and KZMU.